Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, just a reminder, the Other People podcast is offered freely. All episodes, more than 550, are available for free. Your support makes a difference. If you want to support this show, you can do so at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Okay. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Hey, hello, hello, hi, ho, ho, hey. This is the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. It's the day after Christmas. It's December 26th, 2018. That's when this episode is going live. The holidays are over. You made it. I hope you had a Merry Christmas. I hope you had a Happy Hanukkah. Kwanzaa, whatever it was, if you did not enjoy it, if it was hard on you, hey, it's over. So at least we have that. I find the uh, holidays to be an exhausting nuisance. I don't feel like a Scrooge. I get it that it's fun for kids. I try to play along as much as I can. I say this from the perspective of uh, rationality. All of the uh, social obligations, the cards, getting these pictures, not knowing, you know, what what do we do with these? Do we throw them away? Uh, You know, what else? Presents? Did you get presents? Did everybody get presents? Did you get presents for so-and-so? Are they going to be offended? Do you need this? Do they need that? It's exhausting. It's unnecessary. They should be done away with. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> what can I tell you? Oh, yeah. Like another thing that occurred to me, and I, I uh, tweeted about this, I believe. But I was walking through a store and uh, just looking at all of the uh, items on the shelves. It's like a Target, you know. And I started to think about the global economy, all of the jobs out there, the things people do, the rat race, all the, all the products for sale, all the services for sale. How many of these products and services are truly, uh, fundamentally good for people? They're, they're providing something, uh, deeply nourishing and vital and necessary for people versus how many of these things are actually completely unnecessary and are marketed to people and sold to people uh, by leveraging their uh, fear, insecurity, envy, desperation, sadness, depression, whatever it is. 
And uh, I guess the moral of the story is that it occurred to me as I was walking through Target that uh, almost everything that's for sale in the world is garbage. Like, and I know that's a dark view. <laughs> really starting off this episode with some positivity and light. But I mean, am I wrong? Like, do we need like 175 different shampoos? Do we need candy? Like all this candy? I mean, I know people like candy, but I mean, really? Do we need candy? Is candy good for humanity? Maybe it is. I don't know. A little candy's fine. I'm not saying no candy. I'm just saying you walk down the candy aisle. You're like, what are we doing here as a species? Like all this plastic. Do we need it? Throw pillows. I know you need pillows to a certain extent, but how many, like how many pillows? Just garbage everywhere. We're just making so much garbage. Everybody's, you know, and everybody's got to make a living, get ahead, make some garbage, sell some garbage, make people think they need the garbage. Make yourself into a lifestyle brand. Sell things. Soda water. Fuck, man. I don't know. Uh, I got a letter from, uh, Sam, this guy, he writes to me all the time. He listens to the show. He says, yo, Brad, in the monologue of episode 556, you said that you are quote, fascinated by the urban coyote end quote. Have you ever seen the film collateral? The director, Michael Mann might also have a bit of a fascination with coyotes roaming around urban Los Angeles. Here is the one minute clip from the movie. I imagine that you share the same reflective and pensive reaction as Tom Cruise does after seeing a coyote. And then uh, Sam shares the clip and uh, he continues. Anyway, Michael Mann felt it necessary to include this coyote scene in his film when he really didn't have to. It was an imperative to the plot, which begs the question, is there some deeper symbolization at play here? What might the urban Los Angeles coyote say about us as humans or the world we live in? Much to think about. Love the podcast, Sam. So in this clip, and if you haven't seen Collateral, I think this is like Tom Cruise is a hitman. I saw it years ago, but I, you know, it comes back to me vaguely. I think he's like a hitman. It's a bit of a darker role. Jamie uh, Fox is his driver, kind of driving him around LA while he's like knocking people off. And uh, at some point, you know, this clip that Sam sent, they're driving and they see a coyote and they have this kind of moment where they're both very quiet and they look at the coyote in the road. I don't know, like this, like, I don't know if it symbolizes anything or like, maybe it's just like this reminder that we're on this wild planet. But you, know, when you live in this like giant urban megalopolis where everything's paved, like every square inch of real estate is built out over miles and miles and miles, like Los Angeles County is the size of Connecticut. It's an absolute beast. And then you see uh, a coyote or a mountain lion within city limits. It's a little jarring. So maybe it symbolizes like the fallen world or the way that hum, you know, humanity has broken the world or the way that, you know, we're all just animals. I don't know. I don't know, Sam. You'd have to ask Michael Mann.
it's nice. It's kind of weird. Just to, like I always like when there's a, I will say this. I always like when film directors reference nature, particularly in its uh, relationship to man in their films. I think this is one of the reasons why I really like Terrence Malick films because he's always like cutting away to like a, you know, like a, a sloth or something like when I remember in like the thin red line, you know, all these people are like shooting at one another and blowing up the jungle and it's like horrible. And all of a sudden he cuts away and it's like a, you know, a monkey, like looking pensive, confused. Like what are these fucking creatures doing? I believe in the wisdom of uh, nature. I also believe in the wisdom of youth. I was saying this to a friend. He's like, you know, you, he's like, you see, you're awfully young is what he said to me. It's because I was like kind of uh, bemoaning the state of the world. I was bemoaning how, you know, how everything that is for sale is garbage. And, (laughs) and I was like, yeah, I, I hope so. Like I didn't, I wasn't, I didn't take it as an insult. Maybe he meant it as an insult. Maybe he meant it as like, wow, you're immature for a man of uh, 43 years. But I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm trying hard to stay young. I believe in the wisdom of youth. Like you have all these great ideals and good, you know, good ideas for the most part, or at least to some extent. I know, I know that there's also like the folly of youth. You can be a complete moron when you're young. All of us are, but I think at our best, when we're young, we have clear vision, you know? But I sometimes feel like I was the, I was like the guy in the dorm who, like when we were all having those kinds of conversations in college, like really took them seriously and everyone else seemed to be taking them seriously, but they just like moved on. They're like, no, like, like worldwide, like getting rid of like, uh, (laughs) I don't even know what I'm trying to say. Like just speaking in uh, idealistic terms, getting into John Lennon, (laughs) just like that whole attitude. Like, I'm like, yeah, that's it. And I feel like, uh, I sort of like stayed there and other people were like, no, I'm going to go, I'm going to go off and, uh, sell condominiums or, you know, whatever they're going to do. But I'm stubborn, you know, I'm stubborn in my idealism is what I guess I'm trying to say. And I wonder if it's a character flaw. I genuinely don't know. Like, is it holding me back? Have I done damage to myself by uh, having such strongly held ideals? Is it foolishness? Is it some sort of immaturity? Or is it uh, noble? Even if it is ultimately leading to, uh, you know, challenges or something. I don't know. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. 
It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Should I get to the program? I think we should do that. Brittany Ackerman is my guest. Her debut memoir is called The Perpetual Motion Machine. It's available now from Red Hen Press. It was a delight to meet her. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Here she is, folks. This is Brittany Ackerman. I knew that this was going to be my project. Like, I knew I want to write a collection of essays about my brother and I growing up, told from my point of view. But I didn't know what stories I wanted to tell or how it would all fit together. So the MFA program was really helpful in you know, having the workshops. And my uh, thesis chair, Becca McKay, was really the one who, every time I was kind of writing around a story, she'd be like, no, you need to write through it and write, you know, write this hard thing that you don't want to write. Um, so that really helped shape... The, the collection, um, I kind of made a list of, okay, I know I want to write, like, I think Space Mountain was probably the first one, which is funny because it's the last in the collection, but I knew I wanted to do a lyric essay that had the experience of being in Disney World and, like, riding the ride in a lot of, like, Florida, um, and then talking about different times where either I've uh, experimented with drugs and alcohol and then my brother's experience, so I knew I wanted to do that. Um but it just it went through a lot of drafts like the revision process was just really crazy because I had um, when I submitted the manuscript to Red Hen, it was it was different. Like it was very different. It was pretty much just the skeleton of my grad school thesis project <laughs> that um, that did, I graduated with. Where but, did you go to grad school? Uh, Florida Atlantic University in okay. Florida. Yeah, they have an MFA. Mm -hmm. okay. Yeah. And can you give people, I mean, I know you've sort of talked about it, but can you talk a little bit more for listeners mm -hmm. uh, so that they can kind of wrap their heads around what the collection is, the relationship between you and your brother, what what's at the heart of the memoir? Yeah. So it's funny because I think for a while I didn't really know, like I just had all these stories and um, I, I wanted to tell them, but I figured out when I was writing the title story of, or the, yeah, the title essay, The Perpetual Motion Machine, that it's it's epistolary, like it's letters to him. Um, we had a really close childhood because when I was seven, uh, we moved to Florida, and you know, so he's getting pulled out of his high school where he has all his friends and um, and all my friends, and we just have like this completely separate, you know, separate experience from leaving New York to go to Florida. So we were each other's best friends for a long time, like every weekend. And we moved in the summer. So um, we only had each other, you know, and then like Saturday morning cartoons, <laughs> but we would play together. And so we were very, very close. Um, and then growing up and uh, I think it's, it's many things. I mean, addiction is 
is a, a crazy spiral, but there's also uh, there's also behavioral issues and some mental illness, I guess you could call it. Um, but uh, because that, of that, like, that both of you dealt with. Yeah, both of us. Yeah, um, that I think that's what it kind of it brought us together at other points in our lives, but then it also separated us because maybe like when one of us was well, the other wasn't, or when, when one of us was struggling, the other wasn't. And so it was kind of like, it came in waves. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't even remember the question at this point, but well, no, that's like what the, what, that's what the, the, <laughs> yeah. the memoir is about Yeah, because it's a series of short pieces mm-hmm. that are interconnected. Yeah, It's about the relationship between you and your brother, but it's also about the struggles that both of you have gone through uh, with addiction. Yeah. That's a lot of, I mean, do you have addiction in your family? Like in like your yeah, ancestry? It's, it's funny because we were just at breakfast and my mom, um, I, I knew this, but I guess I forget things sometimes. And my mom was talking about how her, her father was a gambling addict and that's very real and very difficult to deal with in the family. And um, it definitely runs in our family. And so does, you know, anxiety, depression, uh, bipolar disorder, like all that kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, it definitely was it's definitely a thread throughout the book. Um I wanted each of them to be able to stand alone also. Like if you just you know, a lot of people have a favorite. Like a lot of people are like, Oh, I love, you know, the Aruba story or I love um Space Mountain or you know, I love the, the in the forest one. Like I like when people have a favorite because I it means that it can stand alone. Because um, I've submitted them out as just, you know, standalone pieces. But I, I wanted there to definitely be a thread to feel like, oh, I see why this is coming after this one or like, oh, I see why she opened with this. And so I wanted it to make sense. Um, but that's why in grad school, I just kind of wrote like I think there was like seven stories or something. Uh, and then there were some that I just took out and then I, I kind of had to frame it in a way that that made sense. Um but yeah, so the the revision process was really a, a crazy one. It, it went through a lot of revision. Um, I remember when I finally got to meet Joanne Beard, she was basically like, "I don't revise. Like I write sentence to sentence, and I revise in my head." And I was like, "I don't know how you can do that." <laughs> so that was kind of amazing to me because I'm a huge fan of revision. I think that's maybe to me the most important part and especially with this collection it went through so much of that like it's not the same as when i went to school with it or when i brought it to my publisher even so it's it's been through a lot <laughs> yeah well and it feels like you know like you said you're trying to find a way to frame it you're trying to find a structure so that these disparate in, in some ways disparate stories hold together mm-hmm. and there feels even though they can stand alone it does feel like there's a progression yeah it feels like you're getting somewhere you're moving through your childhood you're moving through your brother's childhood uh i know like it's just some observations like you guys went on a lot of nice vacations yeah and it was interesting though because you know you're writing and i think this is probably part of your intent you're writing about these really beautiful paradisical places and yet there's unhappiness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's always, inter- it's, it's always interesting as a human being to be like bummed out in paradise. Yeah. But yeah. I think a lot of us have had that experience. I mean, you look at Los Angeles, mm-hmm. I guess, you know, this place could qualify in some senses as a paradise. And there's yeah. lots of unhappy people here yeah, who absolutely. on the surface level have everything. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also privilege, which I appreciated. Like you're very open and honest about kind of growing up privileged wasn't hidden no it wasn't glossed over you weren't pretending you know like that was just how you were raised right yeah i think it's a an example too of because i do agree with that and i I didn't want to shy away from that especially when we were living in new york 
um, my father had a really great job and what did he do? Um, so he, he owned a, or he worked for like a software company. So he sold software to hospitals and this is when computers were starting to get big. And, um, so he was like the CEO of that company. Um, and my mom was able to stay at home and, and raise us for, for the most part. It wasn't until later that she went back to work and everything, but, um, I kind of wanted to, it's kind of the idea of like, like, I know it's kind of sounds silly, but in Sleeping Beauty where, you know, the parents have the, the daughter and, uh, they, you know, they invite everyone to the party except the evil queen, but like the evil queen is going to show up in your life, whether you invite it or not. And I feel like that was what my parents were trying to do, like to keep us away from all the evil and like, just show us the nice things, you know? Um, but that it's going to probably come back tenfold if you try to hide your kids from that. You can't insulate children yeah. from the world yeah. for too long anyway. Yeah. I mean, some people go to real extremes, yeah. you know, like living off the grid or homeschooling, yeah. and, you know, but I think eventually the world's going to catch up with yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I, th I think about this as a parent, you know, wanting to kind of protect my children and wanting them to have a childhood, but yet I'm raising them right in the middle of Los mm -hmm. Angeles. Yeah. Like last night, uh, you know how they have these apps that tell you like all the crimes that are going yeah. on. Yeah. It's like, it, it's totally anxiety inducing. Yeah. I'm not, I'm sort of mad at myself for even, I don't even know how to unsign up. Do you yeah. know what I'm saying? Like, how do <laughs> yeah. I stop this? Yeah. But I was just thinking like last night there was like a robbery in our neighborhood at seven o'clock at night or something there's a helicopter flying over and this is a nice neighborhood. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, my God, like, where am I raising my kids? Yeah. But, but I, I think, cause I'm really interested in this stuff. I mean, I, I want to be a parent someday and I, I'm a teacher right now. And so I get really into this stuff because I think that the whole idea of like safetyism started out as a great concept because, okay, you want to cover up the outlet so your kid doesn't stick a finger in it, you know, and get electrocuted or, you know, you want to put the knives away and like that stuff is all helpful. But now in there's certain because I, I teach at a an art school in Hollywood and um, it's a smaller school. But at some of these bigger universities, you know, they're they're doing away with like public speaking classes because they're like, well, kids shouldn't be uncomfortable if they don't want to be. And I'm like, oh, are for you God's sake. Yeah. And I'm like, are you kidding? Like, we have to be uncomfortable. Like, I think public speaking should be mandatory, um, you know, or like, oh, well, you know, th that idea of like people shouldn't have to do things that make them uncomfortable and like protecting your kids. And well, I don't, or the participation awards stuff. I mean, I'm kind of curious what you think about that. Cause you have a, a daughter, but the idea of, um, I have a little cousin who does little league and he's seven years old and no one wins at the end of the game. They all get trophies. And I really am against that because like, you got to work for stuff. You have to know, you have to know how to lose well. Um, and I think that relates to writing too, because if I just, if the first place I sent my book, they took it and I just got a push cart nominee and a Pulitzer and whatever, and just got all of these things. Like I wouldn't really understand the, the importance of it. And I wouldn't understand what earning it means. And then eventually when I do get rejected, I would fall apart because I wouldn't know how to deal with that. It's like when you get A's in, you know, middle school and high school because maybe your parents help you or it's easier or whatever. And then you get to college and you get a C and you're like, what the heck is going on here? You fall apart. <laughs> like, yeah. Like you're destroyed, you know, um, but grades aren't, aren't real anyway. But, but yeah, I just, I think all that stuff is really quite crazy because the idea that the winning is looked at as a bad thing or losing even as a bad thing. I just think that's really destructive, especially to kids and especially kids in college who are, you know, my students are, they're, they're, they're pretty happy and they're pretty, um, enthusiastic about what they're doing. 
Uh, it's an art school, so they're like singers, actors, dancers, all that fun stuff. But they don't know who they are yet. That's for damn sure. <laughs> they're trying to figure it out. And I still don't know who I am. Yeah, I don't meet me either a little bit. But um, I have days when I'm like, this is who I am. But then that, that falls apart. But um, But I think for them where it's like, Oh, well, you don't, oh, if you don't want to perform, like, especially them, if, okay, you're assigned to this role and if like, well, that role makes me uncomfortable. It's like, are you kidding me? You, you don't get to say that. Like, you have to do it. You have to be uncomfortable. Well, so a couple of things, Yeah. like you mentioned, uh, earlier in the context of your family history that there's a, you know, a, uh, addiction, uh, like echoes through the generations, but also, uh, you mentioned anxiety and depression. And so this is one line of thinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, first of all, like does, isn't, doesn't anxiety and depression run through everyone? Yeah. Like yeah. I was, I was just talking yesterday with a coworker of mine about anxiety in particular and how everybody's feeling mm-hmm. it may be more so than ever. Yeah. It's like climate change, mm-hmm. this crazy time we're living in historically, yeah. the uncertainty. Yeah. Um, the, you know, all of it, mm-hmm. but I feel like everybody is stressed. Yeah. And I think with anxiety can come depression, mm-hmm. like a sense of futility and hopelessness. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's, it's, it's always been thus. Yeah. I don't think there's ever been human being, uh, you know, a generation or an era of human existence that wasn't plagued by this. Yeah. It's kind of part of the condition, but it feels like it's at a fever pitch almost. Yeah. And has it gotten worse since we were little? <laughs> <laughs> well, I I was at a, the Orpheum Theater last week and I saw Jordan Peterson speak. He's a clinical psychologist. And he talked a lot about that, that the question isn't, or the question shouldn't be like, you know, well, why is everyone anxious? Or like, how could you possibly be anxious? It's like, how could you not be anxious? Like, if, if I were to Google something I'm feeling right now, you know, there, I'm, or at some point in my life, I'm probably going to deal with a health issue. If not me, then maybe a loved one. Um, I, I've already had that stuff happen in my life. It's like, you can't go through life unscathed. Like, you're not going to... Do you mean the addiction issue as a health issue? Or I, I guess that in my case, but, um, but with anything, I think in general too, like there might be... Uh, something either you're not aware of or something that you can't worry about until it happens. And then it just happens. Um, I guess what I'm trying to say is like everyone there there's, we are living in chaos and suffering and it's, it's kind of inevitable. It's kind of like part of the deal. It's like the evil queen, like she's going to show up in one way or another, um, whether we invite her or not. (laughs) Um, but I totally agree with that, that we're, we're all anxious. It's like, if I, go into any of my classrooms and I say, okay, everyone like close your eyes. Like, okay, now raise your hand. If you're anxious, everyone in in the room would raise their hands. And <laughs> I don't think it's just because they're all artists and they're at an art school. I think, I think it's really everyone. I think it's just how you choose to look at the world after knowing that information and accepting it. Because I feel like a lot of people try to say, well, I'm, I'm anxious, but I want to get rid of that. Or I want to figure out how to work around it and just like push it aside but I think that you have to like embrace that and make it a part of you um, and channel it into something good or productive. Well, that's what you were talking about. This is this brings me to my second like line of questioning is that you talked about being in grad school and working on this book and having an instructor. I'm forgetting the name. Uh, Becca McKay. Yeah, Becca yeah. McKay, like basically saying to you, no, 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 no. You can't write around these yeah. things. You have to write through it. Mm-hmm. And I think the same 
uh, can be said for anxiety and human suffering. Like yeah. the, the way through mm-hmm. is through. Yeah. You can't numb yourself with alcohol and drugs or television or yeah. internet or whatever it is that we try to use yeah. to avoid. Yeah. And yet that tendency mm-hmm. in us, even with that knowledge, because I know that and I can still write my way around a yeah. lot, you know, <laughs> yeah. like the tendency to want to avoid like that just painful confrontation with our own uh, suffering and with the kind of groundlessness uh, of human existence. Yeah. Like nothing's ever really solid. Yeah, yeah. And that is not necessarily uh, always pleasant to um, deal with, but you can't, there's no other way. Yeah, it's just, that that's the way it is. You know, that's the the world that we're a part of. But I just don't find it very productive to be like, well, everything sucks and, you know, woe is me. And kind of, you know, when... I remember being in high school and like listening to Green Day and just being like, yeah, the world sucks, you know, but it's like that's not a very like productive way to live. Um, but I think it takes a lot of effort to to live against that because I kind of think the cool or the trendy thing now is to kind of commiserate and be like, yeah, like this person's bad or this thing happened that's bad. And like, doesn't that suck? And, you know, and it's kind of become like a trend to be unhappy or to be depressed almost like it's cool to or, have or to be there or angry. Yeah, to be. Yeah, exactly. And I understand that way of life and I definitely sympathize with it, but I just don't find it very productive in the long run. Um, I think at some point you have to grow up and out of that. Um, and that kind of happened for me when I was in grad school. Um, I remember someone once told me like, oh, you should always be, you know, tweaking on a project. And I carried that with me for a while because it made me think like, okay, well, in order to not get over, but to get through the anxiety that I have about life and my family or whatever, I need to always be working on something. But the fact is that I actually need to always be trying to see that thing through and not just having all my, you know, just all these cards up in the air. Like I have to focus on one thing and finish it. You know, how, do you, as, how do you decide what to focus on? Um, well, it was easy in grad school because, you know, I pretty much had just that time to do that. But it's kind of a it's just like you get an idea for something and you can let it just be an idea and have it just kind of float around. But then there comes the understanding part of that idea and then maybe some knowledge with it once you kind of seek out and try to learn more about it. But um, I don't know. I guess the, the an example that I can relate is I had this idea for a while that I wanted to write a book, which that's, this is the next book that I worked on. Um, I was really inspired by Joanne Beards in Zanesville. I don't know if, you, if you've read or heard of her, but um, she had a really famous collection of essays, which I kind of modeled this after. But uh, her next book was a novel, and it was a fictional account of her as a 14-year-old girl, just like a year in the life kind of thing. And I was kind of obsessed with it. And my experience growing up was so different than hers. I mean, but similar in many ways, too. Um, you know, she grew up in the in the Midwest, and um, she had an alcoholic father and uh, a very uh, anxious mother. And so she has a lot of family stuff going on, too. But... I got this idea, like, I want to do the, my version of that. Like I, but for a long time, I just kind of sat with it and just thought about it. Or I wrote a short story and I was like, oh, that's good enough, you know, whatever. But it wasn't until I was like, okay, I need to write this and I need to make it a novel. And I have no idea how to do that because I never 
like learned, um, you know, how to, how to write a novel. I only know how to work on an essay at a time, but I was like, maybe if I just try to map it out and, um, I just kind of, for one year, I put all of my energy into that, like all of my creative energy. I tried not to write anything else. I, you know, cause usually I'll be working on like 10 things at once, but I tried not to, to do that. I just focused on that. When I sat down every day for like an hour to write, I just worked on that. Um, I had a big, uh, trifold science poster board <laughs> that they use for like the science fairs and stuff. And I just had note cards on it and post-its and everything. And I tried to map it out and, um, I just dedicated myself to it. Um, I think that that's, for me, that's how I do it. I just have to mentally say, okay, I'm going to take X amount of time and focus on this one thing. Because if not, like, you know, you wake up in the morning and you're like, oh, I could do this. Or like, well, this essay is half written. Or like, I have this idea. But I had to really make it, uh, like, I had to go back to my, like, middle school days of my, like, you know, colored highlighters and, like, organization skills. And I had to really make a visual for it. And just, it was kind of all I did for that year and I got it done. Hmm. Um, it's the next thing I'm going to submit out, but, uh, but it, it, it was, what I, is it? Is it a novel? Yeah, it's a novel. Oh, yeah. it is. Okay. Mm-hmm. But it's also about childhood. Yeah. But so it's my, uh, 14 year old girl character of me. <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah. So I want to ask you about remembering all this yeah. stuff. Cause I know like in a novel, you obviously have more latitude to yeah. fill in the gaps or whatever yeah. with uh, your own creations. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you know, your book is like the book that we're talking mm-hmm. about right now yeah. is the, the memoir is riddled with specific yeah. details, sensory details from childhood. I'm a person who, you know, I guess I have my memories. Mm-hmm. I'm sure they're better than I maybe give them credit for sometimes, yeah. but I'm, I'm forever bemoaning the fact that I have a terrible memory. Yeah. You seem to remember everything. Yeah, I think it's a mental problem I have. <laughs> I mean, when when I fight with my fiance, he's like, "How do you remember that from like three months ago?" And I'm like, "I don't know. I'm cursed." But um, do you have like an eidetic memory or something? Well, like- so my brother has a photographic memory. So like, if he sees something, like he can read it word for word afterwards, like even for weeks after. But I don't. I don't have that. I. I have a really good long-term memory, but really bad. Like, I don't remember what I just had for breakfast. Like, I have no idea. But in, like, a month, I might remember. I don't know how the brain works like that. I think um, I think what happened in my case is that a lot of the things that I went through in my childhood were positive, like you said. And um, especially, you know, like the vacations that we had and, you know, the lifestyle. But I think a lot of things, too, not only were those moments tinged with a, a sadness to them sometimes, not all the time. But I think there was also a lot of uh, really hard things that happened. And I honestly, like, um, like for example, there, this is in the book. Uh, I remember when the day that we were uh, supposed to, you know, pack all of our stuff, when we were going to move to Florida and my mom was going to say goodbye to her father. So we drove to his apartment and she was kind of having a little mental breakdown with that. And she turned the music up all the way and, um, and just, you know, she was blasting the soundtrack to Footloose, which is kind of manic. And, and me and my brother are just like, what the hell is going on? We're moving and mom yeah. is singing, let's hear it for the boy. Yeah. This is getting <laughs> it's just weird. like, what is happening? And, um, I just, I remember like looking back, but, but for a while that memory like didn't exist for me. Um, it wasn't until I started drafting this book and I would show my brother, you know, drafts of it. And, um, and then he read it all the way through and he was like, Oh, why didn't you put in that, you know, the day that we moved or like, why didn't you put in, uh, you know, remember like the, the song, that footloose song that mom, which one was she blasting? Um, 
It was the one that's in like the the end of the movie, like when they finally do the big dance scene. Okay, I, can't I forget remember. what it's called. Yeah, yeah. but um, but yeah, it's uh, it's loud, <laughs> and um, I and he started talking about it, and I was like, oh yeah, like I I do remember that, but I blocked it out because it was so traumatizing and weird. Um, so those things just kind of like came to me, and then but then what it would happen was. The memory, because I blocked it out or because I didn't remember it well, it kind of came back in like a technicolor way where it's like a cartoon almost. And it was very dramatized because it's now it's my brother's version of how he's telling it. Um, and then, I, you know, I'd ask my mom about it and she had a different version. So it's like everyone's version of the story is different. So my version of the remembered, like the half remembered tale comes out as this like cartoon. And I have to it's like a super... Uh, elaborate dramatic version of it and so that's now what i'm writing so the memories actually changed and become something different it's all very slippery but yeah. there there is a core of truth to it yeah yeah and i want to say because i moved as a child mm-hmm. when i was about 11 years old yeah moving is traumatic yeah it doesn't get like everyone's always like well death is traumatic yeah. or you know some sort of illness mm-hmm. is traumatic or accident but when you move especially i think as a child yeah. but even when you're an adult you pack up and leave yeah. your entire life. Yeah. You go somewhere new. Your identity in so many respects is completely gone mm-hmm. because we forge our identities in the context of those that we're friends with and those yeah. that we know. And nobody knows you. Mm-hmm. So you have to kind of completely rebuild yourself. It's a kind of death. Yeah. That's what I always think of it no, as. No, I agree. Yeah. I've tried to write about it too. Like it's, it, it yeah. was an absolutely formative experience. Mm-hmm. I look back on it actually with some gratitude because I did think, I do think it strengthened me mm-hmm. socially and otherwise. Yeah. Uh, but man, it was difficult, Yeah, especially like right at the dawn of adolescence mm-hmm. and trying to make friends and just yeah. being the new guy. Yeah. And I'll never forget that feeling yeah. of like walking into school and not knowing where to sit at lunch. Yeah. That yeah. was horrible. Yeah. <laughs> Cause kids are, kids are mean or they can be, but I, I remember my, so I was at camp, I was doing this like day camp thing. And then my brother was at a, he was on a teen tour and he literally came back from the teen tour and his whole room was packed up and he didn't even know that we were moving. What is a teen tour? Oh, was so, he in a boy band? I think, no, I think this is like a, a New York elite thing. Like, so parents would send their kids on, like, he, I think in this particular one, he went to Australia for like two weeks. Oh, damn. Um, so it's not a camp or anything like that, but they would go and um, kind of like in a, a little bit of an exchange, like they would learn about the culture there and tour around and um, but it was for teenagers. So it's kind of the age when you're too old to go to, to day camp, but you don't want to go to a sleepaway camp. So that's why it's like a teen tour. Got it. Um, but yeah, so he would he went on one of those and I think he had just come back from Australia and as if that's not crazy enough. And then his room's all packed up and he's like, why, why were you moving? Like, was your dad's job? So, or? Um, so my mom's mom that she was very close with, uh, she had tuberculosis and she had passed away that summer. And we had family in Florida. My my mom's sister. So my aunt is there. And she was just like, yeah, we're going to go to Florida because that was our only or her only other family was there. The rest of her family is in Canada. We weren't going to go there. Um so my dad was still working full time. So he commuted actually for the first couple of years that we lived in Florida. Um, That's he a was, big commute. Yeah, he would fly. And I guess it was more common. But I mean, now people f- fly. They go to like San Francisco for the day and work. You know, they it's just more common, I guess. But um, but yeah, so he eventually found a job in Florida. But um, my, yeah, my mom just wanted to be near her sister. She just didn't want to be alone after the passing of her mom. And um 
I remember being kind of excited about the move because I thought, oh, we're going to be because we would go to Disney World all the time. But, you know, once a year. But now I'm like, well, we're going to live like, you know, two hours away. Like, that's, well, how old were you? You were like seven um, years old. I was it was this summer. Yeah, I was seven. OK. Yeah. So, yeah, you're still at that age. I think still young enough that it's you, it didn't doesn't hit you yeah, quite as hard. Yeah. But, but I was also like, well, what about all my friends? Like, you know, I just didn't. You know, and this is before Facebook or even before I knew what the Internet was or all right. that stuff. I'm a kid, you know. So my mom kind of just framed it as like, you know, you'll meet new people and it'll be exciting and trying to be positive about it. But, yeah, my brother was pretty unhappy about it because he's yeah. already, you know, he's in high school and he has all his friends. And um, and friends know. are so important yeah. at that age. Yeah. You know, your friends when you're in high school, it's like very intense. Yeah. Yeah. And uh I love like, you know, because my parents did the same thing, like framing it positively, yeah. <laughs> but also the point that you made about uh, pre-social media, mm-hmm. pre-FaceTime, pre-cell yeah. phone. When I moved, it was over. Yeah. Like maybe yeah, you a, can write them a letter, but yeah, like you write them a letter that? or you would make a phone call. Maybe yeah. a long distance phone call was yeah. like a big deal back then. Mm-hmm. And it was like, you know, you can't just spend hours yeah. and hours. Yeah. God, I sound so fucking old. But, yeah. <laughs> um, no, but it's true. Yeah. That's what that's what we went through, too. It's It wasn't just. I don't know. I mean, it's still probably traumatic for a child to move nowadays, but at least you can literally just FaceTime someone. Be texting or, constantly. Yeah, that's th- how they, know, constantly that's, interact. Who wants with to them. be with another person in person <laughs> anyway? <laughs> yeah. Um, so I want to uh, ask you. You mentioned earlier you went to see Jordan Peterson. Yeah. Okay. So this guy's controversial, right? Yeah. Yeah. Are you into? It's like, a big a, name drop. I know. But what, what is that like? What's the allure? Were you going out of curiosity? Are you a fan? What, um, like, I don't me have. And my fiance are fans. Do you know about him or just that he's a little not hot enough, topic? <laughs> I know he's a hot topic. I know that like don't like Bernie Bros love him or like what's oh, it, what's the controversy? Know, the controversy is that he's like. <laughs> He he has some things to say about male female dynamics that are not looked upon favorably by a lot of women. Yeah, well, the the reason that I love him and my my fiance is the one that kind of like turned me on to him and uh, and his teachings is because first of all he's a he's a clinical psychologist so that's like his first and foremost. Um, but the reason I like him so much is because what he's saying is very simple actually, and it's kind of like. If you hear it, you're almost like, why does someone even need to say this kind of stuff? It seems so simple, um, but it really hits and it's, it resonates. What like, does he say? So, for example, one of the first things I heard is like, so he if he has a patient that's maybe you know depressed or like doesn't want to you know interact with the world or doesn't want to get out of bed in the morning even, um, the first thing he'll say to them is, okay, well you know like what is what does your room look like? Like what is your house? Is, is or do you clean your room? Like is there a mess everywhere? Um, you know, what are you, like you trying to say to me, Brittany? <laughs> but it's the things that maybe we don't really want to admit. Like, yeah, my room is a mess and there's crap everywhere. And, you know, I, you know, I, I, I don't go food shopping or I'm not taking care of myself because that's kind of his, his biggest thing. It's like you have to take care of yourself. Like you have to clean up your room physically and or literally and like metaphorically, like clean up your house. Um, you know, get your stuff in order, like personal responsibility. Yeah. Taking responsibility for your life before you then go out and criticize the world. Um, because that's what a lot of people are doing. Like they're out there saying, Oh, this isn't fair. or This sucks. Or I hate this person or whatever. And it's like, well, what, what about your own life? Like, have you looked at your own stuff first and how I interpret that? I'm not sure if this is even how he hundred percent means it, but you're never going to get your life in perfect order. Like nothing will ever be perfect. So therefore you shouldn't really go out and 
criticize the world. I think you can judge and you can have opinions and maybe you want to make things better in the world because that's obviously great and helpful. But to just sit and criticize and not do anything about it, that's where it gets to be really troublesome because you're just sitting there and you're criticizing the world, but you haven't even looked at yourself yet. So like personal responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. So that's very basic. Yeah. Which it seems like, okay, that's a basic thing that we should all know and do. But um, the way he says it is much more eloquent than, than me. Um, and then he'll also say, well, you know, well, what do you do? Like, do you have a job? Are you in school? And, um, a lot of people will say like, oh no, I don't have a job. And he's like, well, get a job because you need to have a reason to wake up in the morning. It doesn't matter what the job is. It doesn't matter if you have a mail route or if you work at McDonald's or, or at a retail store, it doesn't matter what the job is. You have to get up and have a sense of purpose. Um, if you're getting up and you don't know why you're alive, like that's going to really be pretty negative for you because anyone can understand that if you wake up and you have nothing to do that day, like, and not that it's like a day off and you should, you know, stay in bed and just sleep or whatever. But every day, day to day, you have to have something to get up and go do and like contribute to society. Um, he'll also ask like, what do your relationships look like? You know, do you, do you have friends? Do you talk to people? Are you in touch with your family? Like, are you talking to people throughout the day? Because, then he'll say, well, you know, get a friend, go make a friend. You need to have people that you have common interests with and that you can talk to and have, you know, meaningful exchanges with. Um, if you're just trying to be by yourself all day and just seclude yourself. Like, what are you that's... saying, Brittany? <laughs> it's funny coming from a writer because these are all things that I've had to kind of check in with myself because writing is a very solitary thing, obviously. But I think there has to be a, a balance because I think you can take it too far and just be like, oh, I'm going to go like retreat in the woods for like seven months and just like not seeing anybody. But I think you have to have some kind of connection to the outside world because another big thing that he says is if you lose that connection, when you eventually do try to reimmerse yourself in society, you're going to be really confused. Like you're not going to understand like facial expressions or like if someone smiles at you on the street, you're gonna be like, what's that person doing? Like, it's going to be weird to you when you're just, if you are around that a lot and you're comfortable with it, you're going to know like, Oh, people are trying to be nice. But and this like, doesn't sound controversial. Like, what's the controversy <laughs> with this guy? Well, I think the, the main thing that happened with him was that, um, cause he's, he's, uh, he's out in Canada and they were trying to, um, basically take away uh freedom of speech out there which uh he was really against that that this is where he becomes controversial because he didn't want um it, it's with all the gender pronoun stuff like he he didn't he wasn't on board with making um like certain mandates like if you don't call someone by a certain pronoun that it's illegal that you that's you're legally obligated to use a certain pronoun with a person that is asking you to, to do so or demanding rather. Um, and he, he was really against that because he doesn't want to take away freedom of speech. Like he thinks that that's going to be really a bad thing if we're doing that. Um, but I, I don't, I don't know all of that, like legal stuff that he got into, but that was basically the, like what he kind of got into controversially because he just thinks that it's, it's wrong to try to, he, he cares more about, individuals than this like whole group mentality so he's like you know if i get to know somebody and you know they're they're transgender or they're transitioning and and they ask me like they want me to you know call them something different or they explain things to me like i'm obviously fine with that and he's like but the idea that there's a law and there's this and it's like a legal thing and i'm gonna get in trouble if i don't do this like it, he just wasn't really on board with that and um i'm not saying i agree or disagree with it but 
I, I guess I understand both sides of it. Um, but that's kind of what people tend to focus on when talking about him. They don't really see like all of the other stuff that he talks about, which is really just like he has a book out called 12 Rules for Life, An Anecdote to Chaos. And it's it's pretty much just like the stuff I was talking about, like, you know, how to like wake up in the morning and like give yourself a sense of purpose. And um, he does have some other views that are controversial that I know a little bit more about than the gender stuff. Um wasn't he like talking about enforced monogamy? Like, I, I wish I had better context. <laughs> so for basically, this. yeah, he actually made a joke about that the other night. So, I mean, the enforced monogamy is is actually what you're in right now because you said that you're married. So it's basically he just believes in marriage, whereas a lot of people don't really believe in still getting married and having you know a family and doing all that stuff. Um, a lot of people think like, oh, it's just a social construct to get married, and maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But that doesn't mean that people can't still do it and enjoy it, and you know, and have have other reasons for it. Um, but. One of his rules is, uh, and I'm curious actually to see what you think about this because you have uh, a, a child, especially a young child, but one of his rules is... I have two. Oh, you have two? Okay. Yeah. How old is the other one? Three. Oh, okay. Yeah. Cool. So he, one of his rules is, um, you know, don't uh, don't let your kids do anything that would make them... Dis- oh, hold on. I'm getting it wrong. Don't let your kids do anything that would make you dislike them. Oh, shit. So, so a lot of people hear that and they're like... Well, like that's rude because like, you know, you, what if the kid has a tantrum or like, what if they do something, you know, kind of crazy because kids are kids. But the point of that rule isn't that it's actually, you should allow your kid to, to be who they are. But, you know, like, let's say you have a party at the house and one of your children, whoever, whichever one, maybe the, the louder one or something, um, decides, decides to kind of cause a scene and a tantrum, just screaming. And you have all your friends over and, you know, instead of just, yelling at them or just, you know, putting them in a corner or, you know, just kind of like, or giving them an iPad and saying, play. And just what are you kind saying, of, Brittany? <laughs> is that you should take them aside and be like, listen, you're obviously having a hard time for whatever reason. I would like you to come back and join the party. I want you to have a good time. We're, you know, we're all here to have a good time. Why don't you sit for a minute and just take a break? And when you're ready, you can come back to the party. Then in five minutes, go back, check on them. If they're still crying, screaming, whatever, then you say, okay, you're, you're not ready yet. But when you are, we want you to come back to the party. Eventually, the kid will probably calm down. Um, but it's it's stuff like that. I mean, you, I'm sure as a parent, like you want people to like your kid. Like you don't want to bring your, your daughter over to a, a house and have the parent be like, oh, this kid again, you know, like this kid's an asshole. Like you want your kid to, to be somebody that people are going to like. Um, and that's not to say that they're not going to make mistakes or they're not going to step out of line or have a tantrum or whatever, but you want them to, you know, to have manners and to yeah. be someone that, um, you know, has, has morals. And I'm not is, seeing the, con- this is not controversial. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I feel that ex- way about, exactly. I, I was talking about this on the podcast with yeah. respect to my dog. Like mm-hmm. I want my dog to be behaved yeah, or yeah. well behaved because yeah. I want people to enjoy when yeah. she's around. I yeah. don't want people to be like, Oh, this fucking dog. But I, I have, I have friends that have kids and I've, I've also just seen it, you know, like at, you know, the coffee bean or whatever. It's like parents that are like, Sally, like shut the hell up. And it's just like these, these moments of just, like that is not, you know, it's like, yeah, the kid is being rowdy, but like the parent is being rowdy as well. And it's like, where do you think they learn it from? And, um, and you know, this idea of just like not liking our kids and like dealing with them rather than raising them and like teaching them things that are going to be helpful to them. Like if you, you know, if you, if you have a kid that, you know, they, you know, they're at school and like, they're, you know, handing out 
you know, things like you don't want them to like grab for this stuff. Like you want to teach them like you need to wait your turn yeah. and you need to be patient. And, um, you know, and or if they, you know, they play in a, a game or something and they lose, like you can't just scream and cry when you lose. Like you have to, it's okay to lose. Like it's actually good to lose because that means you can try again next time. And, you know, stuff that I kind of wish that I was raised a little bit more with because. Well, how were you raised? A little bit guarded. You know, I think my parents were really overprotective. Um, I think that shows in some parts of the book, but uh, kind of this I, this idea that, um, you know, my, my mom, I think maybe because, because I don't think it's always the parents' fault. I think since my mom was raised kind of in a, a financially unstable situation, um, she wanted the best for us. You know, she wanted to give us all the things, you know, the nice toys and clothes and um, so I kind of just like always was used to that. I didn't know that, oh, you have to like work hard to like buy these things and they cost a lot of money rather than, you know, something else. And um, so I wasn't really aware of it until, like I said, I went to college and I was like, oh, I have to like do my own laundry and like clean my room. And I've never been asked to do these things of myself before. Um, you know, little stuff like that, like. And I mean, I'm sure when I'm a parent, it's all going to like hit me in the face and I'm going to all I'll say about because you don't <laughs> yeah. have kids yet. The only thing I'm going to I'm going to push back on because yeah. I'm, I'm with you on Please, everything because I need advice. It's so. just the iPad. Yeah. So just trust me. There are going to be moments where you're like, here, just watch yeah. this. Yeah. No, I'm, just I'm watch sure. This yeah. Yeah. And just shut the fuck well, up. Well, I think sometimes like the games on there are, are good. You know, if it's like a learning game or something. Um, but they get hooked. I mean, yeah. kids, like that's one thing that terrifies me is like how easy it is mm-hmm. to sort of pacify a child with an iPad. Yeah. And how quickly they take to it and how quick, like how quickly they get addicted to it. Yeah. And it's tough because there's just so many moments where like I'm trying to get ready for work in the morning. And my son's in his high chair and he's like, just screaming, you know? And then it's like, okay, just watch this cartoon so that I can have a moment to like drink a cup of coffee. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you don't know, you make all of these concessions as parents, but I also don't want to like fry their little brains Mm -hmm. with like the digital universe, you know, especially when their brains are malleable and forming and all that kind of stuff. I know. I I worry. I like, I wonder, and I worry about that stuff. Like, like my friends that are having kids now, like, the phone is just in their face like all the time, like videoing them and Instagramming them. And it's like, what is that doing to their brains? Like what are they, because you know, they're babies. So like, do they know what that is at some point or like, how are they, how is that affecting them like long-term? Um, but I think there's a difference too, between like you needing five minutes in the morning for coffee and then like, or like I, 25. Yeah, <laughs> it's okay. But I, I, I just don't like when I see kids, like we were at dinner the other night and, the mom was on her phone, like talking, and the the son was watching a video on the iPad very loudly. Like the whole restaurant could just hear it, and it's like just like talk to your kid. Like I don't know. Like I get it that sometimes it's hard, but I just I feel like that's at least something that I'm gonna really try because. Um, You'd be surprised how often your kids don't want to talk to you. Yeah, especially like, when they get to a certain age. Like I'm my sure daughter, I'm like, like, hey, how was your day at school? Fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, what do you want? Did you get in any trouble? No. And she's like a first child. She's like the quintessential first child. Yeah. I'm always like, why don't you, why don't you get in a little trouble? <laughs> Leave me alone, dad. You know? Yeah. And it's like, okay. Yeah. She just wants to watch Fuller House or whatever that, yeah. you know? Yeah. So it's, it's hard, but I, I hear you, you know? And I think like, because parenthood is so complex, mm-hmm. you know, and it's so fraught. You're just like, I just don't want to mess this up. Yeah. But of course you're going to mess it up. Yeah. There's no way. Like we all have, we can all look back at our childhoods and be like, 
wow, mom and dad didn't have a clue or yeah. they screwed this up or they did this well. well. Like, how could you possibly know? Like you're trying to raise a person. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the idea of that is just so crazy. So it's like, you know, for me, it's like, I think a lot of times I have to just dial it down. It's like, be kind, be polite. Mm-hmm. Like if you can raise a kind person who is considerate and polite to others, like a lot of the other things are going to take care of yeah, themselves, yeah. you know, but there are some people like, and this is the other thing is like, I'm very resistant to reading like parenthood books. Yeah. It drives me crazy. Or maybe it makes me anxious or something, yeah. but it's just like, oh, enough. Like I'm going to try to figure this out Yeah, as like a human animal. Like yeah. I, I can do this. <laughs> yeah. I actually think that's a good way to look at it. Like, I mean, we are animals in a sense. And, um, you know, cause a lot of the time when, when I'm upset, it's usually because I'm hungry or tired. Like, honestly, like that's what it kind of boils down to. Um, so I don't know. I think thinking about that is, is kind of effective. Like the, the most experience I've had with, with younger kids is I was a camp counselor for a while. Um, I had like four five, six year olds and, you know, they're screaming and crying because their shoelaces untied. But what always worked for me was not just when I babied them or when I just, you know, gave them a toy or something, but like when I would sit with them and I'd be like, well, you know, like, what, how can we fix this? Like, how maybe I should teach you how to tie your shoes or like maybe they're not tight enough or, you know, and like trying to, I know it sounds silly to like reason with like a four year old, but just like constructively problem solve. Yeah. Like to talk to them, like to really just try to talk to them, even if they don't want to really talk back, eventually something you're like, I would have a lot of instances of sometimes the kids would like, not like hit each other, like they're punching each other, but like, you know, they'd slap each other. They would like push or something and like to sit them down and not just be like, okay, you go over there and you go over there. But to be like, why did you hit her? Like what, what happened? You know, tell me, tell me what happened. Like, take me into it. Like, and it's hard. Give me the play by play. Yeah. Give me a play by play. And like, usually it was like, oh, well she took my toy or like she was too close to me or he was, you know, he touched my shoulder and it's like, okay, well, why, like, why did you do that? And it like, it takes a lot of time because sometimes they're crying or sometimes they're like telling, you know, they're, they lie at first or then, you know, and then they kind of open up, but eventually something comes and then you're just like, okay, well, you know, we can't, we can't touch each other. Sometimes maybe he doesn't want to hug right now, or maybe he wanted to be left alone or like, maybe he doesn't want to play with you right now. And that's okay. You can play with me or you can play with whoever else, you know, or you can both go off into the corner yeah. and watch an iPad. Yeah. <laughs> Let's just solve this. Yeah. So I think it does take more time. And, and like I said, this is me talking now without children. Come back in a few own. years. Come back in yeah. a few years. I mean, I, like I say this, not yeah. like, uh, I, I'm just genuinely curious Yeah. because I do think there are some people who are really, really good parents. Just mm-hmm. like there are some people who are like really, really good cooks. Or yeah. Some people really know how to raise a child and like yeah. create these like little, like achieving monsters. <laughs> I think what, what I'm going to get crazy with is Cause like anytime, like I have like a scratch in my throat, I'm just like hospital. Like, so I'm just afraid, you know, if my child gets sick, I'm just going to, that's going to be the hard part for me. Like, I'm just going to be like, okay, we need to figure this out. But I I don't know. Maybe it'll make me more calm with it. I don't know. Who knows? You're going to get sick more. I'm kid germs. Yeah. Like wet sneezing in your face. As a teacher, I get, I get sick a lot more now and. I can only imagine around the little kids too, and just all the germs. So yeah. I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's go back to. I want to go back to your life and mm-hmm. the and the uh, concerns of your book, mm-hmm. and like in particular, um, you know, substance abuse and mental illness and those kinds of challenges. 
and then eventually getting sober. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think we're, we're headed towards that in your book, but we don't necessarily get that part of it. Yeah. I, it found, I found myself wondering, Yeah, you know, you're clearly in recovery. Uh, uh, well, like, so I never had like a, like a, I guess an addiction. I, I, I think I'm addicted to other things, like more emotional stuff. Like I can be codependent. Um, hypochondriacal. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but I was always able to just kind of experiment because I was curious and, um, and I did use it as like self-medication at sometimes, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't consider myself an addict in that sense. Like okay. With, with so you drugs never did like 12 step or anything like that? No, I did Al-Anon, which I don't know if you're familiar with that, but that's like for the friends and family of alcoholics. So I, I went to Al-Anon for a while and I still go sometimes and I, I do find it helpful. Um, but, uh, is your brother in recovery? Um, he's clean now, uh, but he never really jived much with, with that whole scene because it is kind of a scene, especially in South Florida. Um, that's a whole other thing I want to write about someday, but South Florida, or yeah, like, like the recovery? Delray beach recovery, just uh-huh. that whole, cause Delray beach is the recovery capital of the United States. Like you might think it's like Malibu or something. I was going to say Malibu has got like one recovery center yeah, no, for like a hundred residents. Is, uh, it has the, the highest number of halfway houses, um, and, uh, and rehabilitation centers and it's everywhere. It's just totally inundated. Um, but, uh, but yeah, he, he kind of recovered in his his own way. Like he he did that for a while. He would go to meetings, and then there was another. Um, there was another. Like he he did these meetings that it wasn't like AA, but it was just like a therapy group kind of thing. Um, I know he still sees a therapist now to deal with some of the behavioral issues. Uh, but well, that's good though. Yeah, yeah. Because like, I I think like there's a lot of different ways to skin that cat. Mm-hmm. You don't have to go through AA. Yeah, yeah. But I am always a little bit worried when somebody just like goes cold turkey on their own without any therapeutic component to the sobriety you need community whether it's doctors or friends or people you you need something i think i think everything is hard to do alone but especially in that regard um but yeah he just didn't really enjoy that whole scene and i honestly i don't blame him for it but uh but yeah he he also kind of needed to find um, like a purpose, like something to do because he's so smart and to have all those thoughts in your head constantly, like that was always the hardest thing. I mean, we were just talking to my mom and she says like he still has trouble sleeping. I mean, there's still problems, like there's definitely still problems, but I wanted to leave the book open-ended because I don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> right. Um, this isn't it, something that there's no finite point yeah, like yeah. to addiction. Like I just lost a, a friend, not like a close friend, but a mm-hmm. friend of ours who had been sober for like 20 years yeah. and then just fell off and, and yeah. had a bad night and passed away. Mm-hmm. You know? I'm so, sorry to hear that. Yeah, it's yeah. brutal. It, yeah. I, I mean, I also lost a close, like my best friend mm-hmm. um, to um, an accidental overdose mm-hmm. about seven years ago. Yeah. And I know it firsthand, like it is a tricky illness yeah. and you're never fully done. Mm-hmm. You have to stay on your guard. Yeah. You yeah. Know? So, yeah, I, I totally agree. And I, so yeah, that's why I kind of wanted to leave it because things are still kind of in the air, you know, it's, it's every day. Um, you guys still really close? Um, not like when we were kids, you know, I think a lot of that, I kind of romanticize a little bit, but, um, I also think that because he's got some behavioral issues and 
like he he's on the spectrum a little bit and um that wasn't diagnosed until much later uh which it all kind of makes sense but he's not capable of certain things and that's been something on my end that i really have had to accept like of course i would i would love to be that close again you know i i i miss it but i just don't think it's realistic for him and like sometimes I'll talk to him and he's doing really good. And then sometimes it's, you know, he's in a depression and which is, you know, it's understandable, but um, I've kind of come to the point where I need to still get my life together. And like, I still, if I just focus on him or anyone else for that matter, um, I can't really do the things that I need to do. Um, it wasn't really until I moved out to LA and kind of separated myself and went on my own path that these things started happening for me. So what I things? like getting the book published and, you know, meeting somebody, you know, my fiance. And so what um, changed? Like you pursued these things and you moved and you changed your geography, but like, yeah. was it emotionally freeing to sort of have some, that distance? Or? Yeah. Um, cause I love my family and I would do anything and I miss them. And you know, my mom's leaving today and I'm going to miss her, but I think the, the idea of, okay, well, you know, I could stay, I could have stayed with them. Like I could have just stayed in Florida and been sentimental about it, you know, but I think I had to get away from that. And I had to just, um, physically, yes, but also mentally kind of move on and like start living my life for myself and start like cleaning up my room metaphorically for me. Cause my room is always pretty clean physically. Um, but I had to kind of get my life in order and I had to, uh, which I'm not at any means like good at that yet, but I'm, I'm trying where I wasn't before. I kind of used to think, something would just eventually happen that would pull me out of what I was in and take me somewhere else. And I don't think that would have ever happened. I think you have to like make that move. Um, but I don't think anyone necessarily needs to like move across the country to do that. I just, I felt like I wouldn't be able to let go of my family unless I was physically away from them. And you listen to the footloose soundtrack. Yeah. Too many times. Just blasting it on yeah. the flight. Why did yeah. you pick LA? Um, I had been here right after college. I was here for a year and I, I loved it, but I didn't have the right job and I was in a really bad relationship. And um, I also knew I wanted to go back to grad school, but I wanted to do it in Florida because it would have been cheaper there because um, grad school is very expensive. Yeah. Um, Especially so, and to spend all that money on a writing degree. Yeah. it's It seems a little silly. Um, I almost went and got my PhD and it's like, that is just, that's like four more years. It's just crazy. Um but so I I loved L.A. And after living in Florida for another three years while I got my MFA, I started to really miss it again. And I had taken a trip out here for a friend's wedding and I spent the week here just to see like, OK, well, where would I live and like what would I want to do? And um, I uh, eventually just decided, yeah, I want to be back here. Like it felt right. I don't know how to explain that, but it just felt like the right place to be. Um and when I first moved back out here, I was waitressing for like a year and a half. Where? Uh, this little bar in Hollywood on Hollywood Boulevard. I just, it was the first place I, I walked in and the guy hired me on the spot. And um, all of, a lot of my really close friends are, are still from that restaurant that I made, like that, you know, the first couple months of me living here. Um, but that was the perfect job because it gave me my days off to write and to, work on the book and get it together. And 
um, like I said, I kind of made that mental plan of like, okay, this is what I need to do. It doesn't it doesn't matter what my job is. Like, I I need money coming in somehow. And you know, waitressing is really good because you get cash all the time. Um, it was relatively fun because I get to talk to people and. Obviously, there's downsides. I mean, customers and, you know, people that yell at you and drunk people and whatever. But I was like, I need to kind of deal with whatever it takes to be a writer. Um, I had also just read Annie Dillard's The Writing Life. And I was like, okay, I want that life. Like, I need to do whatever it takes to get to that point. Um, Luckily, now I have a a teaching job, so I'm not serving anymore. But um, it's definitely something that a lot of people, you just like have to do it. You just have to be willing to do what you need to do to be the thing you want to be. I think. What about Florida? How do you feel about Florida? Um, I, I love it because my family is there and like my cousins are there, my aunts, uncles. Um, I have a lot of family that are still there. Cause it gets like, I think in the popular consciousness, it's like, Florida is like the land of like the very odd and disturbing yeah. news story. It is. Yeah. It's like a, alligator robs man, <laughs> you know, like yeah, weird right? stuff like that. Or like, um, you know, like, like, you know, man high on crystal meth. Yeah. Like rapes a, you know, Python in the swamp or, you yeah. know, I, and we're like, wait, where did that? And then they're like Florida and we're like, oh, okay, whatever. Like move on. But yeah. So yeah, I guess I didn't want to really be associated with that kind of stuff anymore either. Um, but is it really that weird when you're living there? Yes. Because like <laughs> I was really out there, is. I was out there just about a year ago on business in Orlando, and I found it sort of ungraspable. Yeah. It was kind of sprawling. I spent some time in the car, kind of driving around and exploring, and yeah. I was like, "What is this yeah. place?" I couldn't uh, figure it out. I Sarah guess- Gerard has a great book, Sunshine State, and she really hits the nail on the head with it. Like. Just all the, and she was in Northern Florida, like, uh, Tampa and that area. And like, it's, yeah, it's also because Florida is so big. And so like Miami is like a completely different place than where I lived in Boca Raton. Like it's, it's like another world. First of all, everyone speaks Spanish in Miami. It's like, um, it's kind of like a little mini version of Cuba almost like with all the nightclubs and, you know, Spanish food. And, and then like in Boca, it's all just like, rich white people <laughs> like you know and girls driving mercedes and prep schools and you know and the, but then you drive literally an hour north and you're in the swamp so it's like it's just really um it's a lot yeah it's a lot it, there's a lot going on and um it, it it also feels very small at the same time like it feels like you can get stuck there like i have a lot of friends that are still there and they're just like oh maybe i should leave but it's like something happens and you just get like stuck and Um, you know, but I don't think there's anything wrong with living there. I think there's positives too, especially like my parents who are probably close to retiring. Like it's a beautiful place, like the beaches and the sunsets and, you know, it's very relaxing, especially where my family lives in, in Delray beach. And so I don't, I don't blame someone that would want to go there and just, you know, have a nice life. Is substance abuse more because it's Delray Beach, you said it's like the mm-hmm. recovery capital yeah. of the country or whatever. Yeah, part of that's the weather, yeah, and just like opening recovery centers where yeah. people can go kind of dry out, yeah, mm-hmm. in like 80 degree weather. But is there also like a very high degree of substance abuse? Yeah, there yeah. is. Why I think just because it's so concentrated, um, it's so Delray Beach, there's a street called Atlantic Avenue, which is actually kind of similar to like a Larchmont, you know, like stores, restaurants, shops, you know, little stuff like that. Um, but imagine 
going down there and like every single person that works in the store or works in the restaurant is somebody that's in recovery. Like that's kind of what Delray Beach is like. It's like you have all these nice things and nice and, you know, restaurants where it's like, you know, $100 for a bottle of wine, this and that. And your server that's opening the bottle of wine is an alcoholic, you know. Right. So it's kind of a it's a very weird place. Um, but I think that's why it's so prominent just because like it, the high concentration and then people, you know, they fall off the wagon and then it's like, they're right there to go back into the treatment center. Like you can walk across the street and just find another one or, um, you know, then go a little further and find someone that's like strung out. Like it's just, it's just all over. So I feel like it's for somebody that's coming to Florida to, to try to recover. It's probably very challenging because well, it's also, and there's like also like the beauty. Yeah. It's like paradise. Yeah. I think there's something to be said for being unhappy in a place that's like, you're supposed to be happy there. Yeah. So when you're not, it's like you're, you, you, maybe the tendency is to, to double down Yeah. and be like, okay, maybe I'm just going to have yeah. more to drink yeah. or more to, yeah. you know, and I think people maybe get carried away. Yeah. Yeah. There's also like not too much to do in Florida. So it's like, what else are people going to do? You know? Um, or it makes me think about the movie, uh, the Florida project where it's like, all that stuff happened five minutes away from Disney World, like the most magical place on earth. And we what, what was all that stuff? I didn't see this movie. I think I oh, have. Oh, it's great. Willem Dafoe. Yeah. Okay. So it's it's basically taking it takes place at a motel that's like in Orlando, but not one of the Disney resorts. You know, like uh, the Yacht Club or um, you know the 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 Grand Floridian, all those nice expensive places. It's in a motel, and it's a, a single mother trying to raise her daughter in this motel, basically, and you know, chaos ensues, but, um, it's not till the end of the movie where you get a little peek at Disney world. Um, but it's kind of saying like, yeah, you're really close to all this wealth and all this industry and all this stuff that's happening, but you can still have poverty and struggle and, you know, a single parent and, you know, all of this stuff happening, like the chaos can still happen, even though you're next to this, to, you're next to Disney world, like literally, right. <laughs> um, and that's kind of how I feel about South Florida is like, yes, it's paradise and beautiful and there's all this nice stuff there, but you can still in this, in the same street, literally have, you know, beauty and chaos, like right next to each other. Yeah. I mean, wealth and privilege doesn't insulate anybody from yeah. any suffering yeah. or the pitfalls of being human. And sometimes I think it can exacerbate it. Yeah. You know, you have too much privilege. It's like easier access, less to do. Yeah. I, I mean, know. yeah, my high school like, you know, people were just, they were doing Coke in the bathrooms. And stuff. Really? Like, yeah. Like I would go and go to use the restroom and people are in there doing drugs. And so it's like, you know, usually kids are just selling weed or whatever, but this is like, you know, they're selling oxys and pills and that scares the shit out yeah, of me. Yeah. And it's like, it doesn't, it didn't make it any better because we were at a prep school or a private school. It, it made it worse actually. Cause then it's like the kids, their parents who are on all these medications, like they would just steal it and sell oh, it. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> the pills are what scare me. Yeah. You know, yeah. like pot, I'm not as worried about. Yeah. In fact, I'm worried the least about pot yeah. and psychedelics. Yeah. But I'm terrified of, I mean, I don't love alcohol just because of the decision making, especially yeah. that, you know, adolescent people make. Yeah. And then pills and anything, yeah. powders, no pills, no powders. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, so I do have to take issue with you on Disneyland. You like <laughs> Disney. Um, when I was little, I loved the movies. Like I loved, you know, Cinderella and Beauty and the Beast and. Um, and I like Pixar now too. 
And I loved going to the parks when I was little. Now I can't stand it. Okay, good. Okay, I was going to try to disabuse you of this. <laughs> no, I was gonna be like, you don't have to try. I I don't like crowds. I don't even really like people that much. So it's very troubling for me to go in there. And, um, and I don't even like rides anymore. I actually get really dizzy. But when I was younger, it was, I don't know, I feel like maybe Disney World just wasn't as crowded, but... It's Especially so, Disneyland. so crowded. Yeah. It's we like, went there for my daughter's birthday and I wanted to yeah. throw there's myself. There's so many people. It's, it's, it's like it's you misery. can't even enjoy it. They need you know? to cut it off. Yeah. There needs to be a maximum number of people that will keep the park enjoyable. Yeah. You like make your money. Yeah. But they're overpacking it. Yeah. And they don't have any, like the human situation in there is yeah. miserable and it's hot. Yeah. You know, it's like, uh, forget about it. No, so, you don't have to d- dissuade me because I'm, yeah, I, maybe I get out there once a year, but it's it's like I have to mentally prepare <laughs> and like it's usually for a friend or you know something like I don't know that I would ever be like hey Carl like let's let's go to Disneyland today like first of all he would just shut that down and um it's yeah but but I I loved it when I was a kid I I still Wait, like is Carl the, your fiance yes yeah okay, okay. um I still like the movies and stuff you know I actually I don't like any of the some of the recent like Frozen I think is like the biggest piece of garbage like ever made um. Which it's sad because I actually, one of my friends, like old roommates, it, uh, plays Olaf. So like I have the connection there, but, um, I just, I hate that movie. Like I like the old school Disney movies, you know, um, I feel like they're really teaching us something. And I've, I've heard recently people criticize, uh, you know, like what, like the little mermaid or, or like beauty and the beast and like, oh, I don't let my kids watch that because it teaches you that you just like wait for a guy and blah, blah, or Cinderella. Like they don't w- let their kids watch that. And I just think that you're missing the mark if that's how you're going to view those movies. I mean, like Cinderella is not about waiting for a guy to take all your problems away. Like Cinderella is about a, a young girl who, despite all the suffering in her life, like despite the fact that her dad died, her best friend, her dad passed away. She has to live with these terrible people that she doesn't like and that don't like her. Um, she's a slave essentially. Like she cooks and cleans and does all the chores. Um, she, you know, but despite all that, she's still kind through it all. And she's able to find love because of that, not because of luck or, you know, a man's power. It is a little lucky though with the pumpkin and the carrot. Um, well, because I think she believed in, in goodness and that's why the fairy godmother came to guide her. Um, but, uh, I think if she didn't believe her, if she would have just been like, everyone sucks, you know, like how most people are today, I don't know that that, that would have happened. <laughs> it's funny that you mentioned that because <clears throat> I'm working on a script for an animated children's movie. Oh, wonderful. Called everyone sucks. Oh, <laughs> okay. Never mind. <laughs> um, last thing I want to ask you is, yeah. uh, like, where are you spiritually? Like, do you have, uh, like any kind of, uh, religious belief or like a spiritual concept that guides you? Yeah. Um, I love that question. Thank you for asking that. So, um, I know I, in the book, I, I mentioned that I was raised Jewish. Um, so Were you bought mitzvah. I not with, uh, my family. I actually did birthright when I was 24. What does that even mean? So birthright is, um, it's really cool. So if you're Jewish and you're under the age of, I think now it's 30, they raised it. It used to be 25. Um, they'll send you to Israel for free for two weeks. And you just, you do like hiking and you, you go to all the temples and you it's not like a what, very religious trip. Yeah. We went to the Dead Sea. It's not a very religious trip. It's more to learn about the culture. Who pays um, for this? The JNF. It's the Jewish National Fund. Can I do it, this? 
<laughs> I don't know if you, I think you might have missed the cutoff for it, but. Oh, um, I'm not even Jewish, but. Oh, yeah, you have to be Jewish, oh, yeah. Okay. Um, so uh, it's, it's to help you kind of learn about, you know, who you are and whatever. Um, and I had a really great experience on that, but I never really considered myself a religious person. I'm definitely more spiritual. Like, I believe in God, and. That's very I, common these days, too. Everybody's anxious. People are like dealing with depression, yeah. I think, to a man. And then most people I know are like spiritual, but yeah, not religious. Yeah. Well, because I think that I think that everyone has like a, a purpose and that we, you know, we have a, something to do while we're here, whether it's creative or helping people or all of that, you know. Um, but where I stray with religion is that I think stuff from the Torah, like I read it to look at the archetypes and to look at the stories and well, how can I implement that today? Like not just, Oh, I'm going to read that and believe it and take it for what it is. Like I like to really dissect it and say, okay, well this character, like how should I be reading that character now? Like in our society and like, how can I modernize that? Which I don't know if you're like supposed to do that, but I don't really care. That's just how I find it most productive. You got to make it yours. Yeah. Um, but I, I definitely, you know, I, I believe in God and I, I pray and you know, all that, but I don't necessarily, but what's your concept of God? Um, God, it's such an interesting question. Cause no one's really ever asked me that. Um, I think like paternalistic sky puppeteer <laughs> or like this, like we're all made of stars. Um, I don't know. I guess I, I see it more like conceptually just like a, I guess like a higher power, like a, a force or something. Um, I don't know. That's how it, it feels to me. So I guess that feels the most true. Like, I don't know if I see it as like a person necessarily or a, I don't know, maybe a being, but, um, to me, it's like a, it's just like a force that I, I feel because I don't think that anything is coincidence or just by chance or, um, you know, I, I think that there's something kind of, there's like a guidance, you know, that is looking out for, for us or me, at least, I don't know. I can't speak for everybody, but, um, <laughs> what about me? <laughs> no, I, I think, I think everybody, but I know people would disagree with that. Um, but like, yeah, but like, how do you, cause I, I like that can be tempting to think and comforting to think, but it's like, what about like when a child is like terminally ill or like something just horrible happens? Yeah. Like where's God there? Well, I don't think that that necessarily has something to do with, with, with God, like being there and not being there. I think that's like the, the suffering of the world. That's kind of inevitable. Like that's kind of part of the deal of being alive. Is that like horrible thing? I mean, like, cause we're all going to die one way or another, but, um, because, like, people have often asked me that, like, oh, well, what about the Holocaust? Like, you know, where was God for that? And it's like, I don't know. Like, I, I also know uh, a good example for that is um, if you've ever read Viktor Frankl's book, Man's yeah, Search for Meaning. Many like, times. Like, I mean, that's somebody that was in the Holocaust, and he found extreme meaning in all of those things and how to get through it. And But I wasn't, I don't think it was like, I mean, I think it was spiritual, but not religious. Yeah, exactly. He was um, not, he was not, like, finding, like, religious meaning. I think no, he was, no. He was, like, making himself useful. yeah. Um, I don't know. I'd have to like, I need to reread it, Yeah. but I read that book like every couple of years. That's yeah, an awesome it's book. a good one. Yeah. Um, cause he talks a lot about that. Like that was like, you know, some of the worst stuff that you could possibly see in a lifetime. And, um, even like my, one of my kids in class the other day, they had a presentation about, uh, about like veterans and, uh, like PTSD. Cause I have like this social dilemma class and, um, she showed a video and the guy was like, what, yeah, what do you, you mean know, social dilemma? 
So I have them present on a, a social dilemma of their choice, so like something in society that is like a faux pas or something that's like trending. Or, is this a writing class? It's a critical thinking class. Oh, okay. Yeah. okay. I don't know who decided to give me this class. But, right, yeah. And I was like, I don't know what, even how to teach this class, but I'm just going to figure it out. Um, so like sometimes I'll show them an episode of like Black Mirror and be like, okay, what is the writer doing here? Like, what do these characters represent? And um, you know, what, what, are, what are the, what's the show trying to say? Like, what's the message and are they trying to perpetuate this problem or are they trying to resolve it? And so, um, so she, sh- one of the girls showed this video and it was a, a veteran and he was talking about how for years he was an alcoholic after he came back from his tours in Iraq and, um, was really depressed and bad PTSD. And he's like, it wasn't until I like found a, a purpose and, now he like does photography and he's like, now I'm like, you know, I still deal with that stuff every day, but like, at least I know, like I can be creative and I have outlets for this kind of stuff. And like, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going to be okay. And I don't feel like I'm in that dark place of just nothing's ever going to be okay again. Um, that's the kind of stuff that I look for in my own spirituality is like, I know there's always going to be problems and chaos and suffering and immense amounts of that probably. And especially coming from, my family situation where that was very prevalent for so long, even though a lot of it's like over now, I still have the trauma of it, but it ebbs and flows. Yeah. Like it not, and not only, I'm not saying that like specific situations, I mean, they, they they can ebb and flow too, but like life's going to get everybody eventually. You'll get yours eventually. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Like I said, like the evil queen's going to show up and I just want to be able to, to try to make meaning out of that and to try to look at it in a way that it's like, okay, this has happened, but how do I move forward? And like, what can I do to maybe be not productive, but to, to make art out of it? You know, in my case, at least, um, that's your mission. Yeah, I think so. And I think like, I keep saying like to myself, okay, it doesn't even matter if people like the book or even if they like me, I just want them to relate to something in there, like whether it's one of the stories or a scene or just some kind of feeling like I just want people to not feel alone. I think that is really my mission. Like I want people to know that if you have addiction in your family or mental illness or if you yourself have those things, it's like you're not alone. You know, you're you're never alone. And there's people that have been through it, too. And not that we should all like band together and, you know, cry together, but just that it's it's. It's been, I it's actually, happened I want to cry again. Yeah. Well, that's okay too. I'm, <laughs> I'm down for that, but, um, but that it's okay. Like, and that you can also like be a writer if you want to, or you can be a painter or you can teach or travel the world or like you can still have a life of your own, despite all these things that are happening to you or that have happened, that there's more than just the things that are happening to you. What yeah. ha- What's going to happen when we die? Do you have any idea? <laughs> um, I don't know. I honestly try not to think about that too much. Not because I'm like afraid of it or I'm afraid of it. Yeah. I, I a just, little bit at least. Yeah. I just get I don't know, like there's sometimes I have moments where I feel like I understand death, like and I can like feel it or something. I don't know, like I feel like I understand the concept, but then it like goes away really quickly. <laughs> like so I don't know. I well, just when you understand it, oh, so, so it's it's not with you anymore. No, like it's like a feeling. It's like Trying to, because also, you know, what bugs me out even more is like, well, what happened before me? Like trying to think about like before I was born, like, where was I then? You know, like you were your parents, <laughs> I get, yeah. Part of them. And yeah. then before they were born, you were, you were your grandparents. Yeah. I mean, you know, but like my mind, like, where was that? 
like what is the mind yeah Yeah. i don't know like it's like i know that bugs me out even more i think um but i i don't know i guess i i won't know until i die um i don't know i just i i don't know i mean i i remember reading uh in uh, Maggie Nelson, the Argonauts, when she talks about her mother passing and I'm just like, for someone to be able to like speak about that so eloquently, like that whole part just, it just got me so much because it wasn't like a fear of death or like a, um, a warning. It was like an acceptance of life ending and it was so beautiful. And that's, that's kind of how I see it, I guess. Like, um, that it's just like a natural thing that's supposed to happen. Like you can't possibly live forever. I don't know that, that we would want to, like, I think you're, you're on the planet to do a certain thing and then like, it's okay to move on. So I don't know. I kind of see it as like, like when you, when you get off of work and you're like, time to go home now, (laughs) like, you know, I kind of see it as like, I don't know. I I feel feel like I have to convince myself that it's something like that. And that it's not, you just got to clock out. Yeah. You're just clocking out like, and you know, you did your job and, um, like hopefully you're, you know, you're okay with yourself at that point. That's why I feel like it's kind of good early on that I've heard the advice, like, you know, stay true to yourself and just don't try to be someone you're not, because I feel like that might be a big regret in the end. Like if you just spent your whole life, yeah, I don't want to have regrets at the yeah, end. I don't want to be like, I wish, yeah. wish I, I, or like have this like horrifying feeling like, oh, I fucked it up. Yeah. My one shot. Yeah. I gave the kids the iPad to me. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm sure I'm going to, especially my, my fiance is a filmmaker and he's like a big movie person. So I'm sure they're going to watch so many movies yeah. on the iPad. So come back in a few years. Yeah. <laughs> it's good to meet you. You too. Thanks for yeah. uh, making the time and congratulations on your book. Thank you. All right, that's Brittany Ackerman. Her debut memoir is called Perpetual Motion Machine. It is available from Red Hen Press. If you want to find Brittany online, you can go to BrittanyAckerman.com. You can check out her Instagram feed. Her memoir, once more, is called The Perpetual Motion Machine. Go get your copy. Thank you to Kill Rockstars and the band Stereo Total, as always, for the theme song music. Thanks to Tiger in My Tank for the interstitial music. Thanks to LitHub.com for syndicating the program. If you want to support the Other People podcast, you can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you want to write to me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. The uh, Other People Podcast has its own official app. The app is free. It's the Other People app. Go get it. It's free. Get it on your device. It's a great way to listen. New episodes automatically upload to the app. You can download episodes to listen to while you're offline. It is user-friendly. It is a delightful user interface, as the kids like to say. I have not seen uh, any coyotes in the past week. I've seen a couple of squirrels. I think I might have seen a raccoon last night in my neighborhood, but it also may have been a large cat. I've seen some birds. I keep looking for the same uh, owls that I've been seeing. I've been seeing these owls up in the hills, but uh, they have eluded me lately. Nothing make me like makes me happier than seeing owls, I don't think. I like owls. A strange bird. Beautiful bird. 
Birds that only fly at night. Twenty eighteen coming to a close. Everything's fine. What a nice, orderly, uneventful year. Very little stress or confusion. I'll talk to you soon.